Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to our policy polls on the fall of Afghanistan. Please welcome our speakers, Luke Coffey, Director of the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy, and Jeff Smith, Research Fellow for South Asia. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, thanks to the events team and thanks to everyone uh, watching from home and thanks to Luke for joining me today for this conversation. It's, um, it's been a rough week for the United States, uh, for many of our partners, and, and frankly, most of all, for the Afghan people. Um, I think most viewers uh, at home saw some of the disturbing images coming out of Afghanistan, out of Kabul, of uh, people trying to latch onto airplanes, trying to evacuate the country after the Taliban swept through provincial capitals and, and took the capital of Kabul and, uh, with shocking speed. Uh, Luke, in a recent article, uh, you wrote it sad geopolitical irony that the Taliban will actually control more of Afghanistan on September 11, 2021, than it did on September 11, 2001. Not only does the Taliban now control the country, they also have billions of dollars in U.S. military equipment at their disposal. A total fiasco. Luke, I know you... Um, you have firsthand experience. You served in Afghanistan. Um, I thought you could maybe start off the conversation today telling us a little bit about your experience in Afghanistan. I, I'm sure you felt a range of emotions over the past uh, week or two. So tell us a little bit about your experience there and also, to the best of your knowledge, what's happening on the ground? How can the American people understand what we've seen the last two weeks? Thanks, Jeff, and uh, welcome to everyone joining us here virtually. Uh, yes, Jeff, for most of my adult life, I've had some sort of connection to Afghanistan. Um, admittedly, when I was a, a younger guy, I, I never thought uh, Afghanistan would uh, play such a role in, in my life, uh, but nevertheless, you never know where life is going to take you. Uh, as a young army officer, I, I did serve in Afghanistan in 2005 for a year. Um, later on in my career, when I worked uh, in the United Kingdom uh, for the British Conservative Party and then also for the British Ministry of Defense as a top aide to their defense secretary, I worked on Afghan policy-related issues but from a British point of view, and I traveled to that country then routinely uh, during that time. And then, of course, here at the Heritage Foundation, I worked very closely with you, of course, on uh, U.S.-Afghan policy and what the U.S. should and should not be doing. I, I, the truth is, I, yeah, I I love Afghanistan. I love its people, its history, and its culture, and its food. Uh, and, and, but, but really what bothers me and saddens me the most as someone who is a veteran and, and who loves Afghanistan is that all this was avoidable. Um, if certain policies were taken, then we would not be witnessing this terrible situation we see today. Um, to give a synopsis about where we are today, uh, it, it is still a complete uh, fiasco, in my opinion. Uh, we have a situation where uh, thousands of, uh, of eligible people 
are still trying to, tens of thousands of eligible people are still trying to leave the country by the means of Kabul International Airport. Kabul International Airport has become this sort of uh, fortress inside this, the urban sprawl that is Kabul. Uh, but unfortunately for U.S. forces, British forces, and, and our other partners, the Turks have quite a few forces there. The Azerbaijanis have uh, forces uh, there as well. Um, the Germans, Italians, the French, there are many others. But the, the, the unfortunate thing for the forces that are in Kabul International Airport is that the Taliban are actually in control of who accesses the airport. There are multiple checkpoints in place. Um, stampeding has occurred where people have died from being trampled on. Dehydration, young babies, young children being dehydrated and dying. Parents that are so desperate that they think the best, uh, the best option is to hand off their infant to a complete stranger, uh, hand, whether it's a US Marine or a British paratrooper, hand their infant off over a barbed wire fence and hope that their child gets out safely to a better future. Uh, you mentioned the chaos uh, about, uh, the, with the C-17s, uh, you know, young Afghans holding on to the landing gear of C-17s, hoping that they could fly out this way, tragically falling to their deaths. Uh, and these aren't stupid people, these are desperate people. And this desperate situation has been created by the actions taken by the uh, Biden administration. If uh, the U.S. was serious about evacuating uh, these people out in a, uh, a professional, appropriate, uh, responsible manner, then they probably would have kept Bagram Airfield open. Uh, Bagram Airfield can be uh, easily secured. It has the facilities to house thousands of people. It has two runways. And crucially, there are two main roads that are well-maintained that go from Kabul to Bagram Airfield. Uh, instead, the coalition, the U.S. and our allies and partners are using Kabul International Airport, which is, if you, I, I, I recommend the, the viewers to open up Google Earth and look at Kabul International Airport. It is right in the middle of an urban sprawl. It's a very small airport facility, one runway. On one side, there are mountains, and the other side is just urban sprawl. I've flown into this airport a number of times, and it's not the ideal place to have this sort of massive evacuation. In terms of the, uh, the other conditions on the ground, you know, the Taliban are talking a good game to Western media um, and on social media about how they've changed. Uh, but what we're getting evidence of across the country is, uh, you know, women being denied uh, going back to the classroom, be being told not to go to, uh, to their jobs. Um, retribution is being handed out across many places around the country, and you can see video evidence of this on social media. Uh, you have right now um, a Taliban that is not equipped to govern Afghanistan. Uh, Taliban fighters are going to different Afghan ministries, demanding to the civil servants that they tell them where the money is hidden. Uh, you know, this isn't how, how ministries work, of course. Um, and it's still relatively uh, chaotic. Uh, the, the Taliban might, uh, they might have taken cities, but it's unclear on, uh, at least outside Kabul, how much, how many cities they actually control. 
and there's been no transitional government formally announced. Um, there, are, there are talks with former Afghan President Hamid Karzai, the former chief executive officer uh, of Afghanistan, Abdullah Abdullah, meeting with representatives of the Taliban to try to have this transitional government. I'm not holding my breath on this. Uh, of course, President Ghani fled the country um, to the United Arab Emirates, uh, by all accounts, with uh, piles of cash. Uh, who, this hasn't been verified one way or the other, but um, for these sort of circumstances, it would probably be par for the course, unfortunately. Uh, so right now, the, the U.S. is just trying to get the evacuation out in an orderly manner, um, get this under get this going in, in at, a, at a, a pace where people can, we can have a steady stream of people leaving and they're safe while doing so. And unfortunately, we're nowhere near this point uh, whatsoever. Hmm. Luke, I wonder if you could talk a minute about um, how the Taliban seem to defy all predictions and expectations and sweep across the country in such a short period of time that seemed to catch the u.s government by surprise many international observers many afghans by surprise how were the taliban able to do this so quickly when and if you listen to the the, the leadership of the taliban they admit that it actually caught them by surprise as well um, people are saying that, well, there was a military solution to this conflict because look at how the Taliban captured the whole country in about 11 days. But I would offer a counter argument that um, this wasn't necessarily a military defeat. There was a breakdown in governance uh, and political will on the, on the side of the Afghan government. And there's been a lot of criticism about the way the or the lack of fighting from the Afghan security forces, President Biden himself has uh, issued very shameful tweets, made very um, uh, provocative uh, uh, arguments in his press conferences about the inability of the Afghans to fight. The Afghans have been fighting, right? They uh, since 2015 they have suffered more than 70,000 killed in action with tens of thousands or more that have been wounded. The Afghans have been leading combat operations every single day since 2015. Uh, they have been carrying the, the burden here. Uh, since 2015, the US and our NATO partners have been providing a training and assisting mission, uh, training the Afghan military so they could go and fight. We were also writing the checks to make sure that the Afghan military could be funded and equipped. But to say that they didn't fight is, is a slap in the face to all those Afghans who have fought bravely over the past several years and to those families who've lost loved ones. But when you have a situation, uh, Jeff, think about this. The, the US trained this military. We provided their air support uh, for the most part. The air support we didn't provide and the Afghans provided for themselves. We provide the civilian contractors to maintain uh, these aircraft. Uh, you know, Congress was desperate to make sure that they had Black Hawk helicopters, uh, which are very difficult and expensive to maintain. While others were others were arguing for a cheaper alternative that's easier for Afghans to maintain. So this had a huge civilian contracting presence uh, in, in Afghanistan. A lot of the intelligence we gave them, the logistics, uh, like I said, all the maintenance support, all of this was with 
withdrawn overnight in some cases. Um, in the case of leaving Bagram Airfield, we literally left overnight without telling our Afghan partners. Uh, so when you have your the whole way you're trained and used to fighting taken away from you in some cases overnight, when you're when your number one partner, the U.S. leaves you like this, uh, people get demoralized. And after suffering 70,000 deaths and seeing the U.S. flee the way we did, it doesn't surprise me that the Afghan forces decided not to to put up a fight. Uh, so I, I think we have to be careful when we talk about how the you know the, the Taliban won this military victory. They 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 took over Afghanistan without well with few shots being fired because of the circumstances and conditions that we helped to create on the ground in the country. Yeah, and it well it, it does seem that many um, in the Afghan National Army did decide not to fight. Um, Many local militia commanders did decide to sort of go along with whatever deal the Taliban was offering at the time. It does seem that uh, there is some resistance uh, beginning to form. Some did choose uh, to fight or may choose to fight. We've seen the former um, head of the Afghan intelligence services and former uh, vice president Amrullah Saleh uh, flee to the Panjshir Valley. Um, one of the only, maybe the only province uh, in Afghanistan now that has not uh, fallen to the Taliban. And we've seen a sort of nascent resistance beginning to organize there with former Afghan National Army soldiers, former Special Operations Forces, and, and those who want to keep fighting seem to be coalescing uh, in this province. Um, can you talk a little bit about what's happening in the Panjshir and, and the history of of the resistance and the Northern Alliance and what we might expect uh, from this movement? Yes, the, the, this is a very interesting um, and developing story and details are slowly starting to leak out that we are able to piece together um, you know, bits of the puzzle to form some sort of developing picture on what is happening. The Panjshir Valley is about 100 miles or so as the crow flies um, uh, about northeast uh, of, of Kabul. Um, it's uh, because of the natural terrain, it's an easily defend, defensible position. Um, during the Soviet times, uh, well, you can, in fact, you can still see Soviet the shells of Soviet tanks and armored vehicles littering the countryside in the Panjshir Valley. It was a place of strong resistance against the Soviets. It was a place of strong resistance um, by the Northern Alliance when the Taliban swept into power in the mid-1990s in Afghanistan. The, this resistance was led by uh, a man called Ahmed Shah Massoud. Uh, Massoud was killed uh, uh, two days before 9-11 um, in, a, in a suicide bombing uh, attack by some people who posed to be journalists uh, to interview uh, uh, Massoud. Um, his son now, a uh, 32-year-old son, has uh, followed in his father's footsteps and has relocated back to the ancestral homeland in the Panjshir Valley to um, start this new resistance. Uh, what we do know is that there are fighters pouring into the region every single day. Uh, we do know that uh, Shah Massoud Jr. Um, was educated at the Royal Military Academy of Sandhurst and, uh, and has some military training and background. But most importantly, he has um, 
his his name and and the legacy of his father that he himself will want to honor. And this will be very important to him personally. So um, the, the the Taliban claim that they have um, launched an offensive um, into this region. Uh, the the resistance fighters on social media are saying they never. You know, the, the, while we, they noticed the Taliban were or uh, were mobilizing, they haven't attacked yet. And Masood Jr., um, through various press statements, has stated very clearly that uh, while he wants to uh, ha end this peacefully in negotiations, uh, he will definitely uh, resist uh, and lead a, a military effort to resist if that is required. And I think that you know people should probably take him uh, at his word on that because, like I said, this this uh, matter of honor uh, with his father's legacy, I think, um, is always present in his thinking. Um, and so right now, it, that's where we are with the resistance. Uh, as as things settle down in Afghanistan over the coming weeks, we'll probably get a better idea on who's who in the resistance movement if it will in fact become a genuine resistance movement across uh, parts of Afghanistan. Because like I said, right now the Taliban, they may have these cities, but whether or not they're controlling them is, is a completely uh, different matter. And on this note, um, uh, Jeff, uh, I know one of the big uh, uh, issues that we have to discuss that people want to hear about and learn about is, is how Pakistan plays a role in all of this. And you know, as one of the foremost experts on this matter, um, especially security in South Asia, I think uh, our viewers uh, would love to hear how the Pakistan factor comes into play with the situation currently in Afghanistan. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a critical factor. And I think anyone with even a passing interest in the Afghan war over the past 20 years has heard at some point that Pakistan is playing a double game and is supporting the Taliban. Um, and that is absolutely true. I have in some ways been a sort of one trick pony on Afghanistan for the past decade plus uh, screaming for anyone that, that will listen that progress in that country is simply not going to be possible unless and until we get a handle on the Pakistan challenge. Um, it is in some ways worse than public reports suggest. Uh, the level of support and coordination with the Taliban, with the Haqqani network. Um, it, it, and it was evident, frankly, from the very beginning when in 2001, at the very outset of the US invasion, uh, Pakistan was airlifting Taliban fighters and likely Al Qaeda fighters out of the country in, into safe havens inside of Pakistan. Uh, things were relatively quiet for a few years after that, but it wasn't long before the Taliban had regrouped and had begun launching attacks uh, against us and against the Afghan government from their sanctuaries in Pakistan. And as you know, Luke, the, it, it's a, a effectively counterinsurgency kryptonite when you have a insurgent movement operating from across an international border. It makes it extremely difficult to achieve your goals. That is not the only reason we've had difficulty in Afghanistan, um, but I think in many ways it was the most important because it was a not sufficient, but a necessary condition for success was getting these safe havens under control. Uh, no matter what we did, how good our strategy was, 
how effective the Afghan government was. So long as the Taliban and Haqqani network enjoyed this safe haven next door, we were going to have an ongoing insurgency. And so the Taliban essentially reconstituted itself in Pakistan. And, and by 2008, the US government was briefing our NATO allies about how Pakistan's intelligence services, the ISI, provide intelligence and financial support to insurgent groups to conduct attacks in Afghanistan against the Afghan government, against the US. I mean, this was 13 years ago that the US government concluded that. Uh, 2009, the very next year, the director of national intelligence, no improvement in Afghanistan is possible. No improvement without Pakistan taking control of its border areas. Former Defense Secretary Robert Gates wrote about when he was at the Pentagon, in every instance that the United States shared intelligence with Pakistan, every instance about a target, the target was either forewarned and, and fled, or the Pakistanis launched an operation of their own that failed. And so the target was forewarned and fled. I knew there were really no ally at all, the Secretary of Defense said in his memoir. Year after year in this conflict, news reports, a deluge of reports highlighting how the ISI was coordinating with the Taliban. Just a few snippets of news reports. The British government has sent several dispatches to Islamabad in recent months, asking that the ISI use its strategy meetings with the Taliban to persuade its commanders to scale back violence in Afghanistan, just temporarily before the August presidential election. BBC interviewed a Taliban commander years ago, and he said, Pakistan supports us by providing us a place to hide, which is really important. Secondly, they provide us with weapons. Um, it's not surprising to me, after seeing this for over a decade, that there were videos this week of, of Pakistanis essentially dancing in the streets. Uh, America's been defeated again. We won. The Taliban won. You have... Uh, ministers, officials in the Pakistani government celebrating, you know, replaying quotes about how with America's help they defeated the Soviets in Afghanistan, and now with America's help they defeated the Americans in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, this is contributing to some frustration, I think, in the U.S., uh, some anger on Capitol Hill. We've seen uh, U.S. congressmen writing op-eds, uh, talking in the past week or two about sanctioning Pakistan, taking a tougher line. Um, there were effectively three shields behind which uh, Pakistan hid for the past 15 years. And it, when people ask me, how can the United States, it was so obvious they were supporting the Taliban, why did the U.S. allow this to persist? Why didn't the U.S. take a harder measure, harder line toward Pakistan? And effectively, there were three reasons. First, the United States was very dependent on Pakistan for supply lines into Afghanistan, particularly ground lines of communication. Second, Pakistan had positioned itself as kingmaker, as uh, the representative that was able to bring the Taliban to the table. So if you ever want a negotiated settlement, you need us as an interlocutor. And third was this sort of nebulous uh, 
specter of nuclear weapons and terrorism in, in Pakistan is too important and too big to fail, and therefore you can't take any punitive measures against them, regardless of what they do. Even if they fund and arm your enemies, even if they're killing American soldiers, they're, they're simply too big to fail. Well, the ground lines of communication are now gone. The second shield, the, the idea that they're somehow kingmaker in any peace deal is now gone. And so we're going to see if, if U.S. strategy and approach to Pakistan changes in the years ahead. There's talk of uh, potentially sanctioning uh, Pakistani military officials at the ISI, um, raising their profile at the Financial Action Task Force for terrorist financing activities. There are a number of levers available to the United States. Um, but I do, I do expect that we're going to see a, a different U.S.-Pakistan relationship in the years ahead. Yeah, I think you're right on, on that, Jeff. Absolutely. And you mentioned the, uh, the Haqqani Network. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the Haqqani Network, uh, who they are, what they're doing? Um, uh, because they're playing a very important role right now in Kabul, I believe. Yes, well, one of their senior commanders was just appointed the head of security in Kabul. And this is particularly concerning to us for, I think, for several reasons. Uh, the Haqqani Network is a, a close associate of the Taliban, but also of Al-Qaeda. Uh, they're one of the oldest and deadliest militant groups operating in the region. They have very close ties to the ISI. Um, and they were labeled a terrorist organization by the United States back in, in 2011. In fact, they've been responsible for some of the deadliest attacks on the United States in Afghanistan, uh, including an assault on the U.S. Embassy, including a, a, a truck bombing in Afghanistan that wounded 77 soldiers, including an attack on uh, the International uh, Five Star Hotel in Kabul, and very likely including an attack on the CIA outpost in Coast. Years ago, the deadliest single attack on the CIA in the organization's history. Um, they putting a Haqqani network commander in charge in Kabul sends a very strong message that the Taliban is not particularly interested in moderation. It also raises real serious questions about their pledges to break ties with Al Qaeda, given how close we know the Haqqani network and Al Qaeda are. And by the way, there have been claims made in the past two weeks by the Biden administration that there is no Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. The U.S. government, the Treasury Department, just last year concluded as of 2020, Al-Qaeda is gaining strength in Afghanistan while continuing to operate with the Taliban. And I think the appointment of a Haqqani network commander only solidifies uh, this problematic connection. So it's very concerning to see the Haqqani network so active uh, in Afghanistan. Um, I know we're running out of time, but uh, Luke, maybe you could give us just a few minutes on, first, was this sweep by the Taliban avoidable? Was there another option available to us? What, what, what might we have done differently? And then secondly, um, what options are available to us now moving forward if the situation deteriorates and what role can regional countries like Central Asia uh, and others play? Yeah, uh, thanks, Jeff. Uh, I'll try to be brief because of the time constraint. So was this avoidable? Absolutely, it was avoidable. 
Uh, when when President Biden entered office uh, earlier this year, there were about two and a half thousand U.S. troops on the ground. We were spending what, in relative terms, was very little uh, compared to what we had been spending in the past in Afghanistan, and we have uh, taken very few uh, casualties in recent years. In fact, the last combat killed in action was almost two years ago. Um, and this isn't to minimize the, the value of even just a single life. I myself, I've lost friends and classmates in Afghanistan. So I know, I know what that feels like. But also looking at it in a bigger picture, because the US wasn't leading combat operations, we were just training and advising. Because we were spending very little money in relative terms, and because we have suffered very few casualties, our presence there was sustainable. Our two and a half thousand troops that we had there in Afghanistan were never enough to win the war outright for the Afghan government, but they were enough to keep the Taliban out of power. And now they are in power. And as you said in your introductory remarks, Jeff, and I, I, I like repeating this, uh, the, the Taliban will actually control more of Afghanistan on the 20th anniversary of September 11th than they did on September 11th, 2001. Uh, th this is a this shows a complete failure of the U.S. approach in Afghanistan. So yes, it could have been avoided had President Biden wanted to keep this military presence there, this small military presence, a military presence that is uh, just like the military footprints we have in many other places ar around the world. And I know that the administration likes to say, well, this was this the ball got rolling under the Trump administration and we had to keep, you know, we couldn't change the policy. It was very curious to me that this administration has changed dozens of Trump admin administration policies very easily with not even thinking twice about it. But for some reason, this was the one policy that they couldn't uh, alter or change. I, I'm not buying it. Biden wanted out at any cost. He's banking on the American people forgetting about this, and it's so tragic what's happening in Afghanistan. I don't think the American people are gonna forget about this anytime soon. And now we have to deal with the consequences. Now, in terms of what are options now, let's be honest, our options are very limited in, in practical terms. The number one focus of this administration should be getting uh, those who qualify out of that country as quickly and safely as possible. In the longer term, we're gonna have to uh, get uh, better relations with countries of, of Central Asia. We're going to have to get better relations uh, with with India. So that way we can have situational, better situational awareness on what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan without actually being there. Uh, so we have an uncertain future ahead for, um, for the United States uh, in this part of the world. Uh, Biden's actions, they have emboldened our adversaries, uh, whether it's in Tehran, Moscow or Beijing, Biden's actions have um, uh, made many of our allies and partners question American resolve, and it's given a shot in the arm to Islamist fundamentalist movements across the world that has not been since, seen since September 11th, 2001. So I hate to end on that depressing note, but that is where we are. Yeah. Well. Luke, thanks uh, so much for spending time with us today, for giving um, giving our viewers some some insights. This this is a topic in a country we're going to have our eye on in the weeks ahead. I, I have a feeling this won't be the last event we'll be doing on Afghanistan uh, this year. Um, 
everyone watching from home, thanks for joining us. Um, our events team is going to send out, out a survey. Um, please fill that out. Did you like the event? What other uh, heritage events would you like to stay, stay up to date on? And um, we'll see you back soon. Thanks again, Luke. Thank you, Jeff.